Well, this morning, I want to address the issue of what I would like to call affluenza. Affluenza. And I want to talk about how we need God's help with regards to our money. We need help as Americans, and even as Christ followers within America, we need help when it comes to how we spend and use our money. And the studies and surveys show us that there's a lot of reasons why we need help. Notice the first thing I want you to see is that one in three Americans frequently are worried about their money and worried about debt. Now, the Bible says we are to be anxious for nothing. And so if we are anxious about our debt, God doesn't want us to live there. And one of the reasons probably why we're so anxious is the next slide that tells us that we carry more in credit card debt than we do in our savings account. So we are fearful of what the next moment is going to bring because we don't have money to cover whatever that um, event or situation or circumstance is going to call for us. And so we are living on uh, pins and needles trying to figure out how we're going to get through the next trial. To give you an example of kind of where we're at as a people in America, here's a snapshot. We meet the average American family. You're going to see that we've got about $3,800 in the bank. 50% of us have no retirement uh, account whatsoever. Our neighbors, they may be the other 50%, and they have about $35,000 in, in savings for retirement. Uh, we have no mutual funds, stocks, or bonds. Our house is worth about $160,000, but our family owes almost three quarters of that to the bank. We make about $43,000 a year, but we can't manage to pay off the $2,200 credit card balance that we have. Altogether, uh, our, our debt is about $118,000. We need help. We need help because this issue, this disease, this disorder of affluenza is all around us. So what am I talking about? For some of you who've never heard this word before, affluenza is defined as the following. It is defined as the painful and contagious social condition that impacts the sufferer with stuff overload, ballooning debt, financial anxiety, and inordinate waste that stems from the dogged pursuit of more. What it is, and in past generations, it's been called keeping up with the Joneses. I'm not sure who the Joneses keep up with, but it's us trying to do what other people do. So we see our neighbors get a new house, we want a new house. We see them get a new car, we've got to have a new car. We see them with something new and shiny, we've got to have that. Whether or not we can afford it or not, whether or not we know how we're going to pay for it, it doesn't matter. Now it's contagious because... All of us seemingly struggle with it. We all, in, in some way, shape, or form, want to keep up with those around us. And so what it does is it causes us to be in debt because we spend more than we take in. It causes us to have things that we don't need. In fact, I recently learned that it is nearly impossible right now, within a 50-mile radius of where we are, to find a storage rental property to put your stuff when you run out of room at your home. We've got more stuff than we know what to do with, so we pay people money to put it places so that it's not around us. That seems kind of odd, right? And then on top of that, we don't have enough. And so we keep going and going. And so it creates this disorder, this dilemma. And God doesn't want us there. 
And so God gives us in this passage of Scripture some wonderful words to live by. Now, quite frankly, I want to be just honest with you. The Bible speaks a ton about money and stewardship. In fact, over 2,000 different times, the Bible addresses this issue. But the Bible never, listen to me, never says that money is evil. The Bible speaks of money like it speaks of time. It's neutral. It's how you use your time. It's how you use your money that God is most concerned about. You can use your time and money for good things. You can use it for sinful things. But the Bible says it's not money that's the enemy. It's the love of money. It's pursuing money instead of pursuing God. That is the root of all evil. And so the Bible speaks to us over and over again, and it says to us, be careful that you don't fall prey to this issue of money. Now, we come to 1 Timothy this morning. And did you know that 1 Timothy is all about money? It's a pastoral epistle. The Apostle Paul writes this letter to his spiritual son, Timothy. And he writes to him, and Timothy's the pastor of a very well-known church, the church of Ephesus. Paul would write a letter to that church called the book of Ephesians. And in it, Paul tells Timothy in this first installment, he'll write two letters to Timothy. In this first installment, in essence, what he says is that money is critical to church life. And it's critical to family life and it's critical to community life. So you better get money down. If you were to do a quick perusal of the book of 1 Timothy, you would see in 1 Timothy chapter 3, where Paul tells Timothy that they need to elect leaders, elders, and deacons. And one of the qualifications for the elders is that they're not lovers of money. You can't lead the church And be about money at the same time. It just doesn't work. He says the deacons, they should not be out for dishonest gain. That is, they shouldn't use their role as deacons to gain financially or monetarily in a way that would dishonor God. The second thing that he says in this letter is is he tells the people, Timothy, tell your people that money is to be used to provide for your immediate family especially when it comes to aging parents. It says, in fact, that if you don't provide for your family, speaking of, you, of, of the uh, elderly in the, in the family, you're worse than an infidel, the Scripture says in First Timothy. And so the job is provide for your family. And because there was no social safety net, like of Social Security of, or retirement savings, that the job of the younger generation was to provide for the older generation in their time of the elderly years. The money is to be used. It's to be used in that way. In chapter 5, we are told, I'm sorry, chapter 6, we are told that even the poor have to worry about their money. And what he says is, he tells Timothy that the poor should see contentment as godliness. So he says to those who don't have much, he says, if you have food and drink, if you have clothes to wear and a place to lay your head, that should be enough. And he warns them not to fall prey to quick, get quick, I'm sorry, get rich quick schemes that will take you away from honoring and glorifying God and pursuing money. And that's where he says, for the love of money is the, is, uh, the root of all evils. And it has caused many to get knocked off the path of righteousness. 
And then in chapter 6, starting in verse 17, he gives a word of wisdom to the rich. First Timothy is all about money. And the reason why is money was a, a issue of debate amongst the people of Ephesus. There were people in the first century that said uh, any kind of pursuit or involvement with money was bad. They called it asceticism. You, you didn't want any involvement with money. Stay away from it. Money, if you don't need to use it, don't worry about it. You're in a good place. A godly person doesn't need to worry about money. And then on the other side, there were false teachers who were saying money was the ball game. And so what they would say is they would say, get as much money as you can. And it was causing the poor people to want to pursue that kind of false teaching. In our day to day, we fall into the same camps. We have the poverty camp, if you will, and the prosperity camp. Now on the poverty side, there are many men that I respect that fall into what I would call the poverty uh, pursuit of money. That is that nobody as a follower of Jesus Christ should live with any kind of extravagance whatsoever. And here's the reason why. They give two reasons. And, and this is held by some really wonderful, qualified, godly men. They say, first of all, that we live during a time of war. What they mean by that is we know as followers of Jesus Christ that there's a war going on between good and evil. And just like when there was wars going on, uh, like World War II, the country would say, man, don't spend money where you don't need to. Let's ration all that we can so that we can send it to the war front. Let's make sure that the war has, uh, the army has everything they need to vanquish the enemy as quickly as possible. So nobody was living in any kind of extravagance. Thus the thinking is because we're at war with the devil, all of our extra money, once we take care of our daily necessities, should be given to the war effort. And we should give it to the gospel effort and nobody should have any kind of riches whatsoever. The second reason that they would give is if all of this is temporal and it's only going to burn up, what kind of wisdom is there in investing in something that in 70 or 80 years is going to be gone? And of course, Solomon says at the end of his life that this kind of amassing of stuff is meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. It, it makes no sense. And so there are people within our evangelical camp who would say that you should not pursue any level of extravagance above your daily necessities. And of course they do that because they look at the prosperity side of it and they see preachers and they hear preachers who, who drive uh, expensive cars and have mansions of houses and fly on Lear jets that they've had their people pay for and they say that surely isn't the way to go. And I would agree that that is not right, but I would also contend that I don't think the poverty area is the way to be as well. I think there is a middle ground and Paul helps us with it. And so what I want to do is I want to speak to a group of rich people about what it means to be rich in this present age. So let's look at this text together. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take a hold of that which is truly life. Let's start with the ending real quick. 
What God wants of us, the reason why God wants us to get this money thing figured out is so that you and I may take hold of that which is truly life. What he's saying is, is there is a place of blessing. There's a place of prosperity in the sense of, of goodness, of vibrancy. And God says, I want you there. I want you there. But to get there means you've got to figure out your money And you've got to put it in the right perspective and spend it the right way to get you where God wants us to be. So let's look at two points this morning. First of all, I want to address the trouble that rich people need to avoid. The Apostle Paul begins his text and he tells us that there's some trouble for rich people. Now let's be honest. Riches help with a lot of issues. The pagan and earthly theologian, the notorious B.I.G., put it this way. More more money, more problems, right? And he's exactly right in that. That there are more problems that come with the more money we have. But let's face it, there are some problems today that you and I, because we have money, we're we're enabled to alleviate. First of all, you woke up this morning in a bed. You bought that bed and that pillow and it was a good night's sleep. You got up, you took a shower, you paid for the water and the hot water heater to take care of that, and you're all thankful for that. You put clothes on, and we're all thankful for that, amen? All right? And the clothes were bought, and then you got in a car, and maybe you stopped for some breakfast, and and you got all of that, and now you're in a church, and the church has a building, and it has air conditioning, it has lights, it has sound equipment. It makes our life so much easier. Let's face it, having money solves problems, amen? Amen? Yeah, come on, people. Okay? It solves problems. But just as it solves one side of the problems, it adds problems when we have it. So let's look at a couple troubles that come when we have money. Number one, we have an identity trouble. The identity trouble is, the text says, I want you to speak to a group of people, the rich. Now right away, I wonder in Ephesus if there are a lot of people saying, oh good, Paul's not talking about me. There are some today who are saying that right away. Oh, this is for the rich people. I don't have to listen. He's talking about Mr. Moneybucks down the aisle. He needs to listen. I know where he lives. I know what kind of job he has. I know what kind of car he has. He needs to listen. I'm not rich, but they are. The problem with that is we are rich. If you live in the Fox Valley area then you are, listen to me, not the top 1%, but the top 0.01% of the richest people in the world. Do any study and you'll find out you are uh, the richest six point, you're richer than 6.99 billion people on the earth. So when the Bible says, as for the rich, right away you need to say, I'm listening, God, because I know I'm rich. Well, how do you define riches? The Bible defines it. Do you have food? Do you have drink? Do you have clothes? Do you have a place to lay your head? If you have those four things taken care of, if you have five, you're rich. So we are rich. We are uber rich. You say, I don't feel very rich. Well, you have the smallest shack in Bel Air. Okay? 
And so you're just living amongst the uber rich. And so that's why we struggle with this identity because we are rich and we don't know truly how rich we have it. Now notice what he says. He says, ask for the rich. And then he gives a disclaimer in this present age. Wait a minute. If I'm rich here in this present age, it then means what? There is an age to come. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. You may be rich here, but just because you're rich in the 80 years you call life, it does not mean you'll be rich in eternity. Remember, we're going to go undergo an evaluation. We'll stand before the judgment seat of Christ and, and we will be judged not for our salvation. That's been paid for by the cross of Calvary, but we will be judged on what we did in the body. And there is this sense that rewards and riches will be given in proportion to what we did in the body in the here and now. So there are people here who are rich, who in heaven will not experience all the richness of God's accolades and affirmation. You may be poor. You say, well, at least I'm in heaven. There seems to be this sense that what we're seeing is in the kingdom to come, we will be very saddened by what we missed out on because we pursued riches in this life and not the one that is to come. So be very careful. Just because you're rich now doesn't mean you'll be rich later. There's a priority trouble. Notice the text says, okay, for the rich in this present age, charge them. Charge them. This phrase charge or command is a powerful word. Literally, J. Adams says it means to authoritatively instruct. It doesn't mean recommend. It doesn't mean suggest. It doesn't even just mean teach. Now, why would it be that they need to charge or command people to do something? Because can you believe it? Back in the first century, it was a temptation for preachers to go soft on money when talking to people. Because people might be a little worked up when we talk about money within the church. And so he says, I want you to charge them. Why? Because we have a hard time letting go of our stuff. We have a hard time letting go of our wallets. So God says, preacher, speaking to a room full of rich people, including yourself, I have something to say about money. And he says, it's mine. Abraham Kuyper said the following, there's not one square inch of all of creation that Jesus doesn't cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. And so the first truth that you and I need to grab a hold of is that this money is not our money. Notice later in the text, it is God who richly provides everything. Your job, your income, your savings, your windfall, all of that has come from God. And so we need to recognize that God has a say in this. He has terms and conditions as to how you see your money, how you spend your money, and how you steward the things that you have. But then he goes on and he says, okay, I want you to charge them. Now he's going to list a couple things of to charge them, to instruct them about. Notice that it doesn't say charge the rich for being rich. He doesn't say that. God seemingly throughout all of scripture has no issue with people being rich. It's what they do with their riches that he's got an issue with. 
So he isn't saying, okay, I'm against people being rich. We have rich and we have poor. That is a part of life. But what he says is rich people, be careful with your humility. Got a humility issue. Don't let your riches make you haughty. There is some connection between being rich and being haughty or arrogant or proud. It's like hand glove. They go hand in hand with one another. You see, the more money we have, we, we start to think we've done something or we're better. Let me, let me give you one that I think a lot of us do and older people, we do this a lot. I did it yesterday. I was on my way to a catering event and I had a young man sitting next to me and we were talking. He's just about to embark into his twenties. And uh, you know what I said to him? I probably broke his heart. I said, when I was your age, I was in a house. Guy's not in a house. And what I was saying was, is obviously you must have done something wrong because I was in a house by the time I was 22 years of age. You're right around the same age. You're not in a house. I do it with my boys. When I was your age, I was saving my money. I wasn't spending it foolishly. I forget about all the foolish things that I spent my money on. And we begin to think, look, I've gotten to where I've gotten because I'm the shrewd savvy, saver, worker, and I've done all of this. And we begin to say, if you don't have that, then there's something less. Let's face it, whether it's in the airport or at the ball game or purchasing something, your money will get you places and get you things just because of the mere fact that you have money. And one of the things that we can do is we can begin to think because our money talks that it's telling us that I'm better than others. Be careful. Don't allow because of the richness that you have to look down at people because they don't have. Don't be haughty. Number two. Number, I'm sorry, number th- four. Security. Don't be haughty. But he goes on and he says, and nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. So what we will begin to do is begin to say, okay, I've got this amount of money. I'm okay. And we begin to look at our bank accounts. We begin to look at our 401ks and we begin to say, look, I am secure. I have everything that I need. I've got uh, the rainy day fund. I'm golden. I've got everything that's squared away. But listen, life has a way of causing problems that money can't buy, that money can't fix. And so while you may think everything is good because you have money, the Bible says be very, very careful. There was a story that Jesus told of a man who had such an incredible harvest that he started building more barns and silos. And the sin wasn't that he was enlarging the farm. It was that he laid back and said, now I can eat, drink, and be merry. That is, I've got no concerns. I've got no issues. And Jesus said on that day, I will demand your life from you. Taking a problem and creating a problem for the man that money could not address. He called the man a fool. If you are trusting in your money or in the stuff you have, you are a fool according to Jesus. Because the only place that we can turn to for our help and our need is to God. So notice four things. 
Do you have an identity issue? Do you see yourself as rich? You are. Spend a little time looking at the other 6.99 billion people that share the earth with us. We're rich. Does God have ownership of your pocketbook? Do you funnel all decisions through Him? Do you think because of your riches, you've got something better than other people? And are you putting your trust in it? These are the troubles that rich people have. But he doesn't stop there. Remember, at the end of the day, he wants to get you and I to a place where we're enjoying that which is truly life. So let me turn to the target. What's the target that rich people should aim for? There are five bullseyes, if you will, to the target. He's given some negative commands. Don't do this. Don't do that. Be careful of these things. Now there are five commands that he gives us so that we can have that which is truly life. So the first one is we need to depend on God. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but to set their hopes on God. And so the place that we go, the number one thing we do is say, I don't know if I've got money or don't have money. It's irrelevant. I've got God. Now, who is this God? If you go back to verse 15, you see this God is the one who is blessed. The only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God is alone the one who stands in immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. This God is the one who is to be honored, and this is the God who has eternal dominion. Amen? Okay, so we depend on Him. Now that is in direct correlation to our dependence on money. God says, don't depend on money, depend on God. Why not depend on money? Because it is uncertain. How many of you are enjoying your Polaroid stock? How about Blockbuster stock? You enjoying that? It's doing well for you? How many of us have been in our houses long enough to know that at one point it's this value and the next moment it's this value? All right? That's why the book of Proverbs says money has wings. It flies away. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. It is uncertain. There is an uncertainty to money. But what can we depend on? God, who is immortal. God, who is faithful. God, who is dependable. We put our trust, our hope, all of our eggs into the God basket. And so we depend on God who is utterly faithful. Number two, we delight in His gifts. The text goes on. I love when Scripture does all the points for you. You don't even have to work on these things, all right? So He goes on and He says, okay, we depend on God who richly provides us with everything. That word everything in the Greek is really important. You know what it means? Everything. Okay? To do what? Help me out. Two of you are awake. What are we to do with this stuff? Enjoy. Sounds like you're enjoying it. Enjoy. Okay? We are to enjoy this stuff. Why would he say that? Because he's dealing with a first century issue where people said money wasn't to be enjoyed. Things weren't to be enjoyed. And so right away, first part of the message, you hear me say, hey, money, man, you got to be careful with it. And some of you are ready to go burn the house down and throw the car off a cliff and all of that. Here's where we stop and say, no, God's given you those things. If, by the way, you've gotten them the biblical way, if you've defrauded or you've stolen from people, you've got some returning to do. 
Okay, we'll help you here at Village Bible Church return whatever you've stolen from people. But if you've gotten it through biblical means, that is, you've worked for it or it's been given to you as a gift, enjoy it. Now notice, God is the one who richly provided it to you. And you are to enjoy it. Enjoy that house. Enjoy that car. Enjoy that technology. Enjoy that which you've done. God has given it to you for you to enjoy. But notice that there is just a very small little thing, a little period, and a very little white spot between verse 17 and verse 18. Because our habit is, is God freely and richly gives us something, and we just sit back and we enjoy it. And we don't do anything else. Notice, right on the heels of enjoying it, are that we are to do good and be rich in good works. So that means we delight in His gifts, But then on the heels of delighting that gift, we do good. Now, what that means is you are not known for your riches, but you're known for the richness of your good works. Does that make sense? People shouldn't sit back and marvel at all the things you have. They should marvel at all the good that you do. Can that be said of you this morning? That people at work, people in your neighborhood, don't say, boy, they've got the nicest house, man. They always have got the newest gadgets. But that family, boy, they are good people. They do so much good in the community. They care about people. They are rich in good works. Now, why should they be able to be rich in good works? Because they've got time on their hands. You and I as rich people have time on our hands. Here's why we have time. We're not looking for our next meal. We're not looking for our next shirt. We're not looking for our next drink. We've got time. We're not worried about those things because money takes care of those problems. And so because we're not waking up wondering, where am I going to feed my family? How am I going to clothe my family? Where am I going to lodge my family? I now can look out at the needs of others and I can be free and rich to serve them. So how do you serve people? You divest your assets through generosity. Now, nowhere, again, I just want to be very clear, nowhere does it say that there's equality, total equality. He's not saying that this is a communist or a socialist approach to um, wealth equality. There's the rich, there's the poor. The call, biblical capitalism, if you will, says that the rich should be uber generous in giving to the needs of those around it. So it says, be generous and be ready to share. How much are you willing to share with people with regards to what God's given you? Let me give you an example. Some years ago, I was catering an event. It was a smaller event. It was held at a house. It was for a five-year-old's birthday party. And the little kid, five years old, all the moms and dads, the uh, grandmas and grandpas, they're all there. Man, it's, it's just a great time, and it's time to do the cake. And this is an important moment. I'm foiling up the food that hadn't been eaten and I'm watching all the events go on and the five-year-old's all excited and the cake's brought to them. You've been to one of these events before. And the cake's there, blows out the candles pre-COVID. They didn't have to do this. Blew all the spit on the cake and everything. <laughs> and then the kid does the unthinkable. 
my cake, my cake. And the mom says, no, it's not your cake. It's everyone's cake. My cake. And grabs the cake. I kid you not. It's one of those designer cakes, too. I mean, really not, not those Costco cakes that we buy for our kids. But, I mean, it's, it's really, it's a great cake. Takes the cake and scoops it into his lap and starts eating it. Okay? The mom's horrified. I can't remember the kid's name. But, Johnny, you're not supposed to do that, Johnny. Johnny. And he says, it's my cake, isn't it? Isn't it my cake? And the mom says, yes, but... We were hoping you would share it. It dawned on me as I was driving home, and I think it was the Holy Spirit, that said, Tim, isn't that what you do with your stuff? God comes and He brings out the stuff to you that He's richly provided for you. And what do I do right away? Mine! Mine! And I pour it into my lap. And God says, Tim, Tim... Yeah, that that was yours, but I, I, I kind of intended for you to slice that up and to share it with the people around you so that you might be a blessing so that others may be able to celebrate with you the goodness of God. Isn't that why we have cake as a birthday party? We do that to all be a part of the celebration. And here we are as Christians and we're grabbing a hold of it. It's mine and we're not sharing it. What God wants us to do is God wants us to bring it. He wants us to enjoy it. We need to cut parts of it. Okay, that's for providing for my family. That's for me to take a vacation. That's for me to buy this and that. But surely there has to be some of the cake left. And this is where debt is such an ugly thing for so many of us. Unbeknownst to us, we've made decisions that we've cut up the cake and there's nothing left. Even if we wanted to share it with somebody, we've got so many obligations to so many people. We've parceled out all the cakes. Now we did it for us because we bought this, 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 and this. But we've never left any of it to be shared. So let me ask you this morning, how much are you sharing of what God's given you? Or are you like that five-year-old that's taking it into your lap? Now, can I just speak very candidly with you for one moment? One of those slices that God wants is a slice that goes back to Him. You see, God's at the party himself. And God says, I don't want all the cake. I gave you the cake. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to share it. But one of those slices comes back to me. Now, what you're not going to hear me say is give to Village Bible Church. But let me say this. If you're not giving a portion of your income back to some gospel work somewhere, somewhere, then you are mismanaging your money from a biblical standpoint. Fix it. If you're a Christ follower and you are not giving something back to the God who richly provides, you didn't hear me say give it to Village Bible Church, give it to someone else who's doing gospel work. But if you're not doing that, then you're that five-year-old kid saying it's all for me. And God's like, wait a minute, I gave that. Listen, I gave you money so that you might be able to share so that the gospel of Christ, what has saved you, might go on in the world. And so what we need to do is the final thing is that we can't forget. Don't forget about glory. Notice he closes this text and he says the following. Thus, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. That word future is is written in what theologians would call an eschatological rendering. What that means is it's talking about the kingdom to come. It's not talking about retirement, that you're storing up for retirement. It's storing up for eternity. And so the question is, as you are receiving money from God, 
Are you having eternity in mind that I want to give God back to you? I want to give God to others because I know that after my life is done here, there's another kingdom that is to come. And in that kingdom, I want to invest in heaven where moth and rust can't destroy and that can have massive eternal implications compared to the temporal implications that my money can do here. Again, the pagan theologians Fleetwood Mac have it right. Christian, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. And with tomorrow, I mean heaven. So let me close with this. Are you suffering from affluenza? The dogged pursuit of more? Are you struggling to get your finances down and and figure them out? Listen, you need help. I need help. We live in a society that tells us this is how you live life. But God says, no, if you can grab a hold of your finances, if you can grab a hold of your riches and use them and divest them in the way that I've called you to, then and only then will you experience what is truly life. And when God says that we can experience that which is truly life, what it means is that's where we want to be. That's where vibrance and health is at. And if God's there, then surely every one of his followers should be there as well.